Welcome back to the Lars Resort, which is still brought to you by Betson. Now, listen, listen. One day, one day I'll tell you all about why this season has been so chaotic. We're not, we're not quite there yet, but for now, apologies again for the long intervals between pods. Uh, but we're back now, for this one anyway. Uh, and I've asked again, and again I've asked my good friend Peter Welpton uh, to help out in dissecting what went on at the weekend. We're going to put like a, like a big carcass of a dead animal. We're going to lift the weekend onto a hook, get our knives out and just chop it to bits. I think that's roughly that, but a slightly less disgusting image is is what we're going to do with the weekend. I think there was just too much going on, too much stuff. Uh, I needed help. And uh, like a very good and true friend, Peter was is always around when I'd need the help uh, when I ask him for it. So without further ado, let's hop straight into my chat with Peter about what went down about what went down this weekend. Hi, Peter. Uh, great, to, great to have you here uh, today. Thanks for helping me out and uh, and hanging out with me and dissecting the the weekend's events. Uh, that, that that's going to be fun. Uh, it's it's always good to to have a partner in crime for these sort of things. I find these Monday nights are very, very cathartic uh, because I find when I'm, when I'm recording stuff with you, you know, we obviously take this stuff seriously and we put every bit as much thought and preparation into it as I would uh, other more, you know, well-known podcasts I occasionally appear on, but it's a bit looser. You can kind of throw, <laughs> you can throw sort of half-baked ideas into the mixer, just kind of kick back and relax and just vent I absolutely love it, Peter. It's tremendous. It was a fantastic opening December weekend in the Premier League. Although I was a little worried after the Saturday slate of games that it wasn't going to be a lot to talk about. But Sunday more than made <laughs> up for it. Wow, what a Sunday of games. It, it was fantastic. And I just, as is on a slight personal note, I started the Sunday uh, visiting my grandmother, who's, uh, who's, who's, who's 96. Wait, wait, I have uh, to ask a question. This is, this is uh, stupid American learning on the fly. How do you say grandmother in Norwegian? Uh, well, I, I'll say Falmo because she's my father's mother. Uh, but the best mo also works as grandmother. But Falmo specifically is uh, my father's uh, mother, uh, who's 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 a very sprightly ninety six. And uh, I spent some time with her, and uh, and and went home and just had because I, I obviously I've I've, not, I've lived abroad for a very long time. I don't get to have the sort of experience of watching football on the sofa with my father very often but this hmm. wasn't a sunday was just a great day to just have a, the big tv and then just in a laptop on the side uh, and just watch loads of football with your father that was tremendous because there was so much crazy nonsense that went on did he get frustrated and throw anything at the screen he did not i mean we we kind of had we kind of had fun uh it was uh, and, and i think i mean I'm I'm a Spurs fan, as as you know, and he's kind of a Spurs sympathizer by osmosis, and it, it all culminated in this pretty pretty crazy game. Where I mean, I had my expectations were zero. I I I went into this. I mean, spoiler. I mean, one of my one of my bet, betting picks of the week was City to win by more than a goal because I thought this was going to get real ugly for Tottenham, and it looked like it was going to get ugly in the first half. But then they kind of came back, and and it was fine. And before that, of course, we had. I mean, we had Chelsea Brighton on our. Main screen, which I don't regret at all. Though Liverpool Fulham was a pretty goofy game as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but Chelsea Brighton was a lot of fun. That's a polite way of putting it. 
goofy. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Okay, let's start with uh, City and Spurs. What a uh, what a result. What a crazy thing. And like I did the last time they wore them, I spend way too much time being distracted by the dirty dish rag brown kits they were wearing. Those are the most mysteriously colored uh, soccer uniforms I've ever seen in my life. But they uh, wore them proudly, Lars. You have to... I. I, I where are you as a Spurs fan with these set of results of late? Are you just giddy? Or are you worried? Are you frightened? Well, I wouldn't say giddy because, I mean, it's still, if we're being completely sort of, I mean, it's just one point out of the last 12 possible, right? It's not a good run. But they've been, but it's my, been a fun one point out of 12. And this is the thing. Like, when the Chelsea game happened the way it did with the sendings off with the injuries, and you thought, oh, no, this is going to be terrible now. And it kind of was terrible in the Wolves game, even though they were ahead for a long time. That was a bad performance. The first half in particular against Villa was thrilling, and they just couldn't put their chances away, and then they ran out of steam. But it was one of those games that showed you what this team can do and made you positive about the future, even if they lost in the end. And then the City game, like I said, my expectations were, were below the floor. I was expecting nothing. I was expecting a, a dominant City win. And in the first half, it looked like that. What we, that's what we were going to get. I mean, the Spurs were not good at all. And they, they kept losing possession in dangerous areas. Obviously, they took the lead. Um, but City were all over them in that first half. And it, it really should have been three or four at halftime, I thought. <laughs> there were so many big chances, so many bad giveaways. And, and and Holland, you know, had a had a really bad miss, and uh, and it was just we thought, oh no. But then I I think but I think um, Postacoglu deserves credit for the change he made at halftime and on bringing uh, uh, Pierre Milhoyberg gone to just add some add some Danish bacon to that midfield, just <laughs> just beef it up a little bit. And then, uh, and then you had Lo Celso as a number 10, so you had that triangle of, of Bisuma, Hoiberg, and Lo Celso just much more solid in the middle. And they just kind of got made their way back into the game. And this is kind of what I talk about a little bit. As much as I want to praise Tottenham for showing a lot of bravery and courage, and there clearly is a lot of belief in this group, which is very positive, City, man, were not quite what I would have expected them to be in that second half in particular. They just didn't respond super well to it. And um, when Pep Guardiola was talking after the game about how, well, with normal finishing, we would have scored the goals and we would have won. Yeah, that's true. But I still look at that second half from City and thought, that's quite far off the level we've come to expect from this team. I think that's not too unfair of me. Is it is are we finally starting to see the effects of no Kevin De Bruyne, no Stones starting to kind of poke through at this point with some of these, you know, it's it's it, it feels stupid to really be negative about City, but they always play at such an extremely high level when they fall off of it for any kind of consistent any amount of time, you just kind of want to point at it and try to figure out why it's that way. No, I, I think you're true. I think there's a bit of an Occam's razor there thing about the simplest explanation or the straightest line, whatever whatever that saying actually is that I can't quite I remember you. right now. It's the simplest explanation is usually the right one. And, you know, the whole key to, to Pep making this team work last season was unlocking the sort of hybrid man, John Stones, and that sort of made the whole formation work. And then you've got Kevin De Bruyne, who's one of the best creators on the planet, pulling the strings in midfield. If you take those two things out of it, yeah, no, it's, it's not going to be quite the same. And that's probably the sort of simple 
and 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 very logical and, and correct thing but what i would like to kind of bring to the table about city is that i'm seeing this more and more and i haven't seen any of the sort of very clever sort of uh, jonathan wilson types write an article about it yet city are pressing a lot less than they usually do right and and and, and, and measuring pressing is a little bit iffy um, but some of this is just eye tests and watching them. You're seeing far more of City just kind of sitting back and actually letting the opponent have the ball. I mean, Tottenham had more possession in the second half than Manchester City. Like, at the Etihad, that's a bit mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at there is a stat called PPDA, which is passes allowed per defensive action in the opposition half, which is basically how many passes, well, I just said it, how many passes the opponent is allowed to make in their own half before you either tackle them or commit a foul or intercept it, right? So it is a very crude way of measuring how effectively you're pressing your opponent. If you look at this season, the team that has the lowest number, i.e. that's denying the opponent the ability to pass the ball, they're pressing high, Tottenham, lowest in the league. You would expect that because they're kind of gung-ho. Second highest, Brighton. Also not a surprise because, you know, they're right in your face, right? So that's, so this, this stat kind of works out often the way you'd think. And if you go back to the... This Lars looking up stats live on the pod. If we go back to the 2021-2022 season, it was Liverpool and City right at the top with the lowest number there. And, and City have consistently been one of the lowest numbers because we know that's what a Pep Guardiola team did. Last season, they were dropping off a little bit, and I guess we kind of expected that. Erling Haaland, amazing as he is, he's not going to run around and press like a madman, so you have to adjust the way you play a little bit. But this season, boy, oh boy... Like they're 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 almost not. I mean, City are almost in the bottom half on the Premier League for this stat, which is a sort of crude way of measuring how much you're pressing the opponent. Crystal Palace, Manchester United, and Bournemouth are sort of d- stopping the opponent from putting passes together, and they're all on half more than City. Now that doesn't necessarily it doesn't have to be a bad thing this is a stylistic thing right Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting to me that city we know guardiola so much of what guardiola does is based on pressing and i'm swamping the opponent i'm just never letting them settle and in that way you sort of gain total dominance over the game they're not doing that this year not in the same way and i think part of it's to do with erling holland just not being that type of player part of it's to do with how they're playing all these center halves you know you're starting with Walker, Diaz, Guardiola, and Akanji. You've got essentially four center halves there, three and a half at least, and and Rodri. So you've got all these beefy boys at the back. So you're probably feeling a little bit more comfortable letting the opponent have the ball and you can stop them, whatever. The character of this team has changed quite dramatically. And I do wonder if, you know... They didn't press as much last season either, and they still won the league. I'm expecting them to still win the league this season. But I'm not sure you can sort of swamp uh, your opponents. Uh, Apologies, I've got a cough coming here. Quick mute for cough. Instant sort of a (laughs) fluey recording. Very good. Sorry, I don't know. I, I think one of the offshots of that, the compromises that's been made uh, to make Holland work in the system for this new sort of strange hybrid formation where one of the center half becomes a midfielder, in all this sort of stuff, is that they're not uh, smothering teams with the high press the way they used to. And I'm surprised no one's really writing about it yet. Okay, now I have to assume you were filled with glee over the opportunity to just talk about a plain old fashioned referee mistake yeah no it's great we hardly ever have that right <laughs> we're a um, human being one individual human being just completely blows it and we're obviously talking about uh the uh, what i'm sorry what was the referee's name in this mr hooper hooper that's hooper. right yeah. hooper uh hooper's error of uh calling the foul 
playing advantage and then instantly changing his mind and deciding to bring the ball back for the foul when clearly City were at least at at least to be the most cautious in a pretty prime opportunity to go ahead. Yeah, but I mean, maybe he just looked at it and thought, you know, uh, Jack Grealish, someone's going to catch him anyway. No, no, it was a, it was a, it was a bizarre decision. Uh, it's so weird that he seems to just um, accurately give the advantage and then just blow when the one on one seems to be on. I mean, it's very very strange behavior from Mister Simon Hooper. I, I thought and, maybe uh, I thought maybe he had seen something else or something else had happened because it seems so weird that he would stop play in the manner that he did. But that's actually what happened. He just he just completely brain farted and effed it up. Yeah, in the moment, I remember thinking that he may have thought it was offside and blew up because of that. But it wasn't, you know, no. that much of a. Uh, it's one of those things. I haven't read the sort of the Dale Johnson sort of semi-official account on what happens and what's supposed to happen, but it just looks like a completely insane dis- mistake. Well, here's what uh, I and, it, and it's one of those where, sorry, just to, before you say something very sensible, <laughs> for me it just seems to be one of those. I I don't even understand why he made the mistake. I mean, I'm quite good at trying to... I like to think I'm quite good at seeing the referee side of things and why they make mistakes when they do. But here, I don't don't see how this happens. Well, I think based on me going back and rewatching it more times than a normal human being should Mm. is... uh, is the following. He blows... he, He allows for the advantage. Yeah. The play... The ball is pushed upfield... But if you pay attention to Tottenham's response, many of the Tottenham players, specifically the defenders, all kind of stop expecting him to blow the foul. Mm -hmm. And I think what he what runs through his mind for a half second, and I'm speculating and guessing here, um, is that he panicked and went, oh, they think I'm going to blow. I probably should have called that. Did I do them a disservice by not blowing? Is is that fair? And he had to yeah. make this decision on the fly in like literally a second's time, and he panicked. Well, having now uh, demonstrated my incredible capacity for multitasking, I very quickly looked up the sort of Dale Johnson account on this. Ah, and okay. He, and he and he reckons that the referee mistakenly thinks the ball isn't of sufficient quality for Grealish to run onto it. So he thought Holland oh. had messed up. He thought Erling had messed up the pass. And uh, and that's why he blew up because he thought it wouldn't be a big chance. That's the Dale Johnson uh, mm. verdict. Whether he's correct in that, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, but well, no, maybe that, that, it, it that, be- that was a goof. But I think the point that's worth making, which I saw uh, one of the British newspapers make today, was to show that sort of now iconic photo of Erling Haaland sort of contorting his face <laughs> in front of Simon Hooper. <laughs> and someone made the point, but you know what? In the same game, Erling Haaland, for all his undoubted quality, please buy my book, everyone, he made an egregious mistake. I mean, he missed an open goal. He made a terrible, terrible error. And you know what? Not one of his teammates stood in front of him and made that face. His his manager did not stand in front of him and make that face. When players make these mistakes, and they make them quite frequently, Uh no one behaves like this around them. But for some reason, it's completely normalized to to harass the referee the way people do. And honestly, again, it's the only thing I really want to say about referees. It needs to stop. 
it really needs to stop and i think people should be shown yellow and red cards much more frequently for for behavior like that towards the match officials are you familiar with the twitter account art but sports art but yeah, make yeah. It sports very, yeah very good so i enjoyed it did you see his uh take on the erling holland face yeah tremendous stuff and uh you know i, I do like how expressive erling holland is and actually the thing i just said i do think players should be allowed a spontaneous emotional reaction sure so my sort of fatwa against dissent is less about the sort of immediate oh my god what was that reaction because that is a human thing that i'm not sure we actually want to stamp completely out of the game but more about the sort of systemic uh surrounding and harassment of referees that we see constantly 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 uh, so to correct myself a little bit there I, I do think we do yeah sure we need to accept that players are human and have human reactions but really uh, the treatment of referees is a problem. I honestly think it's a bigger problem than the refereeing standards that people always freak out about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but thats I know very few people agree with me on that, so I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, uh, for a neutral, it was a, a tremendously entertaining match to watch on a weekend filled with <laughs> highly entertaining matches. It was a great way to end the day. City 3, Spurs 3, uh, which would then, I assume, take us to the other part of Manchester, which is <laughs> the opposite of entertaining. Yeah, yeah, sorry, Peter, I didn't plan it like this, but I mean, we're going to have to... We're going to have to talk about how terrible Manchester United are yet again. And I mean, I'm still, having been a child in the 90s, it's still not, I'm still not quite grown tired of talking about United being bad, because God knows we had a long time of talking about them being good all the time. But uh, yeah, this was a very stinky performance. And uh, I'm I'm not as bendy as I once was. It's very difficult for me to actually pat myself on the back. But I did did call this. I went pretty big in the betting column. Oh, did you? Okay. I had had Newcastle to beat United as both a part of my sort of weekly boosted treble and as a single pick. And this is clearly something we should be on this weekend. And even though it was just uh, 1-0, I feel pretty vindicated in that because really... They were so much better. Oh, yeah. I, I The game played out almost exactly as I thought it would, and, and Newcastle were definitely the dominant side. The fact that it ended up only being a 1-0 win uh, for Newcastle was o- really, frankly, the only surprise. And, you know, if we really think about it, they were essentially uh, a Harry Maguire chest hair away from it ended up being a 1-1 draw uh, yeah. based on that one particular opportunity. So it's... It, I, the biggest, you know, a lot of people have asked me lately here if I'm starting to question Ten Hog. And up until the last couple of weeks, it's been, no, I really feel like he's just trying to do the best with, make lemonade out of lemons. But when I see him start Martial, much less play him at all, uh, put him in, in a starting position in a game like this, and you immediately get the half-ass jogging around Anthony Martial. I, I just wonder. Well, what did you expect you're going to get out of this? And I do. And it does make me wonder what's really going on over there. Yeah. So I've written. I've written something for the Betson website that's not been published yet, but on on the the Ten Hag thing. And I'm going to try to avoid basically reciting word for word what I've written earlier today. But my feeling on it is I'm a bit like you in the sense that for a long time I've felt he's had so many obstacles to deal with. And we don't need to list them all, but if you've been following United at all in the last sort of 18 months, you know there's a lot of stuff gone on there from the playing squad to off-the-pitch stuff to really 
unfortunate injuries at the wrong time to the wrong people. And you've never got the feeling that Ten Hag has had any period of time to just work with the squad with nothing being on fire and for him to just shape the team the way he wants it to be. So, so because of that, I've had a lot of sympathy. But you know what? At some point, you just got to... You know, I, th- I think two of the worst defeats United have suffered that I've seen this season in terms of performance were this one and against Brighton earlier at, at Old Trafford, which I was at. Oh, yeah. And, and I think they're interesting points of reference because both of those were against teams who have a manager who's been there a reasonably similar amount of time to Ten Hag. Who, who have also had problems. Like Brighton lost their midfield in the transfer window, basically, and have also had a bunch of injuries this season. Newcastle have got a ton of injuries right now, and yeah, they've spent a lot of money, but the point about it is both Brighton and Newcastle with their coaches have managed to instill a very clear pattern and a very clear sort of, we know what they do on the field. They have a, they have, there's a pretty clear identity there, uh, even if they don't win every game. But with Eric Ten Hag, I kind of feel like he had to default to pragmatism. Like he came in and wanted to implement his methodology at United. And then we had those really bad defeats at the start of last season. And it became clear that you can't really do that with the players that you have. He pivoted to pragmatism, managed to eke out a Champions League spot and was rightly praised for that. But I I feel like at some point, you need to start to develop something. You can't just constantly be like firefighting and trying to get to next weekend. It's uh, it's a mess. It, it, I think the biggest frustration, and I think a lot of it does start with the injury thing, but what team in the Premier League doesn't have a ton of injuries? But I think the mess that he has in the back line is a set of problems. Uh, but he he clearly has got an issue of trying to get his players to, to buy into whatever it is he's trying to do. Uh, Rashford obviously has got some things going on. I mean, the list just goes on and we, and I feel like this is all we talk about these days. Yeah, no, it, it is. I'm sorry. I'm just going to, I, I yeah. stopped myself because I realized I was reciting my entire article now, which, oh. which we don't have time for. <laughs> but the thing about that, yeah, because last season they couldn't play out from the back because they had De Gea who absolutely can't do it. And they had sort of Captain Maguire who's not very good at it. And so uh. the idea was that you demote Maguire and you get rid of De Gea and then you get in a goalkeeper who's good with his feet and then it's all going to be better. But but then the problem is, of course, the goalkeeper who's good with his feet is not always good with his hands, as it turns out. Like he has had been prone to bouts of like holographic goalkeeping where he might as well not be there. Lars, I'm not and, even and- sure he's that good with his feet because every time he has to play the ball long... Nine times out of ten, it goes immediately back to the opponent. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is because they haven't had a settled back line because there's been a ton of injuries because you're back to Maguire. And it's like, there's not a lot of trust back there, I don't think. Yeah. But again, we've seen Tottenham on occasionally, last couple of weeks, be able to play themselves out nicely from the back with a back four full of fullbacks. You know, with good coaching, you can get around these things a little bit. And I just... The whole idea with Ten Hag, Ten Hag wasn't brought in to be like a constant firefighter. He was brought in to give them a clear identity and show, have a vision and show them a path forward. And he had to pivot to pragmatism to just not get fired. And I understand that. But I can't I can't believe we're sat here uh, almost a season and a half into his time at the club. And we're still watching a team with like Harry Maguire at the back and Scott McTominay in midfield and Anthony Martial up front. Like, if you're a Man United fan, you must be on. How is this still a thing? How I, is this still happening? I know. And and here's the deal. For the last, I don't know, two or three weeks, Maguire arguably has been their most consistent best player. 
Yeah, I get that. But the thing is, when he came in, he looked at Maguire and said, yeah, I'm not sure we can really play sort of sexy builder from right. the back football with this guy. And same with McTominay. And now he's had to turn back to them because they can't do that anyway. And with those guys on the pitch, maybe you can try to win. So I feel like he's almost given up on the idea of turning United into what he wants them to be. Yeah. And he's now just trying to get to next weekend without everything exploding. And, you know, I, I, I get... I understand how you got to there, but I, I feel like there are mo- enough examples around of other managers who've been in charge of clubs under difficult circumstances who've done more in terms of giving them a clear identity and a clear style. And in terms of not having the players, I mean, they've signed like 10 first team players while he's been there for over 400 million pounds. If they still don't have the players to do what he wants to do, you, some of this is on him. For sure, and I think that's the reason why anybody who asks me how I'm feeling about him or is he does he know what he's doing have a legitimate question. I I definitely was overly defensive about him for a long time, but I'm not feeling that way uh, these days. And I di- and it does make me wonder what is going on in his head, Ten Hogs head, thinking it. You know, 18 months ago he had like the cushiest gig <laughs> in the Netherlands where he, yeah. you know, and and then he kind of threw himself into this crazy fire. Uh, wow. And he just you just wonder where what, what he's thinking these days. Wow. He's been paid a lot better at Man United, isn't he? So there's that. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. It's not I mean, like it he is... was, but it's not like he was making minimum wage at Ajax. Lars, no, you know? but I, I, I guess the hope is, if you're a United fan, is that a lot of this stems from the lack of joined up thinking. And yeah, in fact, they, they bring in someone like Casemiro, who is a a short-term fix in that midfield role, but from day one is as good as he is, is not an obvious Eric Ten Hag sort of spray the ball around passing midfielder guy. And it just doesn't seem to be a lot of joined up thinking. And the comparison that can be drawn to Newcastle, I think, because I'm still on the fence about like, can you really conquer the world with like Anthony Gordon and Harvey Barnes? Like I'm not entirely sure this is going to take them to the promised land. But at the very least, what Newcastle have done with their newfound wealth is that they've been very good at getting getting out there and getting guys who suit what uh, what Eddie Howe wants to do. Like he wants an aggressive, hard running team. He wants sort of slightly lower profiles rather than superstars. You know, good lads for him to mold all this sort of stuff. Constantly, Newcastle are bringing in players who just kind of seem to fit the system that Howe is putting in place there. Whereas United are constantly bringing in players who seem to not fit anything. Uh, up there and I don't think you can absolve Eric Ten Hag entirely of blame for that but you can at least hope that when uh, Sajid Radcliffe takes a more active role and maybe sort of revamps the front office a little bit that maybe some of this stuff will get better but I also think if you're sorry stop on the subject but I also think if you're Sir, uh, Sir Jim Radcliffe you look at Ten Hag right now and you think is this the guy who knows the way to the future does he does he know the path to the promised land, and and I don't know. I'm, well, I'm not convinced. I, well, I think a lot of Newcastle's success isn't just limited to Eddie Howe. Obviously, he's a big part of it, but what I've been most impressed by, because I heard a lot of how the two Uniteds on... Uh, uh, on Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening, depending on what time zone you're in, are like polar opposites of each other from where they were however many years ago. And I disagree with that because, you know, Man United back in the day were so successful because when they wanted a player, it could be the best player available on the market. They would just go get that player. 
almost certainly a good fit, but they would go get that guy. Newcastle, to your point, haven't done that. It's not like they've gone out and blown the bank and spent all the money to go get the biggest names in the world to put a roster together. They've been very smart and specific about the pieces they bring in to make sure they fit. And that's really been the most pleasant surprise for me in terms of the new ownership group is how smartly they've gone about it versus the Todd Bowley way of going about it, which was yeah. a big disaster. So Interesting comparison. What, what What's worth noting then lastly is that it's always really hard to judge this from the outside because we don't know who says what in the different meetings and who has influence over what things. But I don't think it's a complete coincidence that uh, when they sort of when it started, when the new owners came in at United, they also brought in Dan Ashworth to be the sporting director who they poached uh, from Brighton and Hove Albion. He'd, he'd done work at West Bromwich uh, before that and had actually been re- reported a few years ago to be a candidate for the United job as a sort of technical job, director, sporting director type of guy. But they got someone in who had a reputation of, of doing good work at other clubs in this sort of capacity, uh, which, um, yeah, I, I think uh, that might be part of why they've been very successful in uh, in putting together a team according to what the, the manager uh, wants and needs. I don't know. But Newcastle, very impressive. Man United continue to, to, to not be. And I, I'm sorry mm. if, dear listener, you're getting tired of hearing this conversation, but it just is one of the more interesting things that's going on in the league at the moment. Nope, they'll futz around, beat all the teams below them. That's crazy stat that it came out this weekend, how Ten Hag is yet to win an away game against a team that's in the top nine or something. Ooh. It's really bad. That's a bit rough. I also just think we're in December now, and United have taken precisely no points against teams in the top half of the table. Uh, mm. That seems bad. That <laughs> seems like not where you want to be. The hits uh, keep we, we, coming. Which is why I was so... Um, uh, so, so sure that this was not going to go well. Um, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, other other games this weekend, my friend. <laughs> well, we mentioned them a few minutes ago, and certainly uh, a good opportunity to segue to the Todd Bowley experience because that's who United have now ripped the Premier League yeah. crisis pillow away from uh, as Chelsea did get a win at home against Brighton. An interesting game unto itself as Chelsea has another player, another captain for the second week in a row, go off on two yellow cards. But they did end up getting the win 3-2, to two, somewhat controversially, uh, over a Brighton team that I think we all agree, Lars, is just kind of wearing, showing a little bit of wear and tear of uh, having to play midweek games. Yeah, it's tough. The, the midweek games and also having a bunch of injuries, yeah. I think, is uh, for it, sure. It's just an, is a bit of a nasty combination from them. I mean, they were playing away to uh, to, to Greece, uh, to Greece, to all of Greece. No, they were playing AK Athens <laughs> in the Europa League. And I remember I was sat on the Thursday late night, like after midnight, I was sat up f- putting the finishing touches on the betting column for the weekend. And I was sort of stuck on something. I could, it was the stat I wasn't couldn't find or something. And just to, for a moment, I just thought, I wonder if I can actually go on the internet and see where the Brighton plane is. And I sort of went on the flight radar website, which is very good. And I sort of poked around a little bit, and I found I, I found a private jet. Uh, sort of 737 chartered that was making its way from Athens to, to London Gatwick, which is the sort of southern airport just north of uh, just north of Brighton. And, and they were just over the Adriatic Sea between Italy and like and the former Yugoslavia, the, the sort of that area of the world. Uh, and that was like 
past 1am, I think. So God knows when they got in. It would have been a very late night for Brighton. Those, those Thursday night away games are not great uh, for the players. But I also just think, ahead of this game, they were missing Fatih, Webster, Sully Marsh, and Cecil Welbeck, Lamptey, Estepinion, Dahoud, and Dunk were suspended. Like, they've got almost an entire team out. As do Chelsea, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought Chelsea were playing pretty well up until the red card. But then you, when you get the red card early, it's uh, it, it really does condition the rest of the game. And I think it was important in terms of just building building morale and, and, and togetherness in a very, very young group to have this sort of uh, positive experience, I suppose. Man, I really enjoyed the goal by Bonate. Uh, in the, yeah, that was a again just one of those weird little young finds that Brighton continues to poke out and then shows up, plays a couple game and hits a banger. Um, and remember when Cisco did that, like in his second or third game for Brighton, he had a really nice uh, goal. And it just I don't know how they continually do it, but um. Well, in my mind, they have just like this room of weird nerds who are just kind of watching Y Scout on the laptop yeah. and just kind of constantly, oh, let's just get this one. <laughs> Buena Notte. Uh, I, I tried this on Twitter. It didn't quite work. Buena Notte. Buena Shotte, more like. Uh, Lars. Hey, that's pretty good. I like Lars. that. If I say Chelsea were good, it does worry me again with the Chelsea thing. As, I, as I've said a thousand times, I'm higher on Chelsea than a lot of people are. But again, like. I'm not sure if this really counts, but like they scored two goals here, but they but they were they were they were set pieces. Like it's not they're not. I don't think they're really solving this issue they have of scoring goals. But I suppose it's the wrong game of discussing that because again, when Conor Gallagher gets himself sent off for like the dumbest challenge imaginable uh, in the before halftime, it just the whole thing becomes uh, a very very different game. And and Chelsea did do a good job in terms of holding on. A couple of amazing moments from Thiago Silva there who had kind of been written off a little bit. Because, I mean, I guess that's what happens. If you're like a 29-year-old player and you have a bad game, you just have a bad game. If you're a 39-year-old player and you have a bad game, people say you're finished. And <laughs> it's kind of unfair, I think. And there was one tackle in particular when, when things were not good and there was a ball was kind of loose in the Chelsea box and it was really sort of fraught and dangerous. Suddenly, like, Silva just slid in and kicked it the heck out of there. Like, he's, he is, he's such a class act. And uh, in, in what is probably a slightly too young young squad he's just absolutely crucial there isn't he well the battle of the premier league crisis pillow is wednesday as united host uh chelsea and i'm sure that'll be a thriller it's such a fascinating thing and i could go on about this but i feel like it's something i've spoken about before on the pod is these teams i'm so fascinated by them because they're obviously neither of them are where they want to be in the league right now uh, Chelsea are 10th, United are 7th, uh, United have five more points, but you know, I, I, I still, I maintain, I would rather be in Chelsea's shoes, because I think there is the beginnings of something there, whereas I feel like United have just completely lost their way again, but I'm not 100% convinced of that, because I also wonder, with Chelsea, we're all just kind of assuming, well, when Nkunku comes back, the goal scoring thing will solve itself, but maybe it doesn't. Like they said, they still have this real problem of converting chances into goals because they have no proper strikers. And uh, it's a hard thing to find a solution to. I still think there's positives in what they do, the way they play overall, but that's the whole non striker thing. The combination of not having a proper striker and having Bob Sanchez in goal, I, I don't love it, I have to say. Uh, whereas with United, there is still this thought, and I guess I don't need to tell you, you'll have thought it already. 
in in this beautiful day in the future when everyone's fit and healthy and maybe stay fit and healthy for a couple of weeks maybe 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 we can see what this team is meant to look like because i still feel like we haven't you know, when you call him Bob Sanchez, that really feels reductive. Uh, and he, he sounds like a guy that may come over and do some plumbing at my house and not a goalkeeper when you call him Bob. Does he go by Bob in real life? I don't know. I wonder if that's from an FPL podcast I listen to occasionally where they're very good with the nicknames. <laughs> I kind of like it, actually. Yeah, yeah. The, the FML FPL podcast. Uh, those right. are good guys. I, I have shan- time to listen, I do. I shannot say the word or the letters that are not allowed, but I am going to just point out no, that the because I cannot honestly I've got a lot on this week I don't want to start looking for the bleep sound and no I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm just gonna point out that the in this particular game is a example of my creations with the modus operandi I feel like this is already skirting very close ver- to the verse the I might edit this out incident that I feel like I'm fine with the thing because that's just a good old-fashioned but there you go that's my there's my um uh, I might just in, I, I might just slip in some random beeps in the middle of that, so none of it makes sense. And yeah, yeah, yeah just, I'm not I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. Okay, I guess I do, do not want to upset the Lars. Uh, all right, the other okay, the big. Well, do, do you want to talk about uh, the most surprising result or the most confusingly entertaining <laughs> game of the weekend? <laughs> But let's do confusingly entertaining because, like I said, I had uh, Chelsea Brighton on the main TV, whereas I had this one on like the side screen. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about Liverpool Fulham. Yes. All right. So it's, 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 it's possible I made the wrong decision there. But if you had this on your main screen, I would love to hear what you made of it because I, I, I kind of struggle to make sense of Fulham. I think they're actually quite bad. I'm pretty certain they're actually bad. But then they do things like go to Anfield and score three goals, which makes them. Th- makes me think I should maybe take them seriously. Well, they were talking on the television about how Fulham hadn't scored two goals at Anfield since the 50s. And then I think the three goal, last time they scored three times at Anfield, they also lost 4-3, to three, and that also was in the early 50s, which seems, you know, improbable. But I yeah. was convinced before Liverpool finally hit that fourth, you know, when, uh, Al- uh, when, uh, uh, when they hit that fourth goal... I was convinced we were going to come away talking about how the sport, this is a sport where one team can hit three absolute worldies and one team can score three trashy kind of scrappy goals (laughs) and end up with the the same amount of points out of it. And I thought that would have been funny. But no, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold pulled it out late for, for the old Liverpool. But but I think just I should just throw this in here, having not watched the full 90 minutes of this, I do wonder if it's just a case of, Alice, Allison to Keller is a little bit of a downgrade. <laughs> yeah, and, and, boy, that poor kid. He looks way in over his head for sure. Yeah, and and then that's just kind of part of it. But uh, I mean, again, Liverpool have got some some pretty good footballers, and they're just really good going forward and can do incredible things. And I mean, the hit from McAllister was just oh, oh my god. Yeah, that was uh, that was that I made that I I saw that out the corner of my eye on the second screen, and I made loud noises in the sitting room. That was uh, that was quite the hit. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the numbers are actually sort of pivoting straight to the XG here, but the numbers are interesting. Liverpool have created the highest XG number in the league so far. So in terms of the XG, they've got the most sort of potent uh, attack. Uh, 
but the defense is not quite as good. Arsenal, City, and Newcastle all better defensively. And that's just kind of where we're at with Liverpool, I feel. Can I ask you a very uh, American bias question? Please do. Where where does Anthony Robertson sit in the pecking order of left backs in the Premier League to you? I have no idea. Really? I... I <laughs> I'm I, sorry, I haven't I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about him. I have to say. Oh, okay. Well, maybe this is an unfair question for your podcast. I I really think he is quite good, and I think there yeah. are signs that I, I do begin to wonder if bigger clubs will start looking at his potential because he's so good going forward and can do things going forward, and he's actually not a terrible defender, which is hmm. not something you see a lot of these days. I think I have to just keep a closer eye on Fulham. I'm going to see if that works with the fixture list. I'm going to try to find some 90 minutes of Fulham to watch because I cannot make sense of this team. On paper, they should be quite bad. Like, they don't have a lot of players who I think are good, certainly up front. Jimenez and Vinicius, like, nah. And then none of the midfielders really sort of excite you. And the defense is kind of fine, but not a lot more than that. Leno, I think, is a decent goalkeeper, but like if if I, say you're, I mean, we're going slightly off base just because I didn't see this game. But well, uh, but I just want to ask you, as a Man United fan, if you were playing your your team was playing Fulham at the weekend, what are you worried about? Like, wh- what players on this team are you looking at? Going, oh no, maybe well, you're a bit worried that Palinia will eat your entire midfield. I mean, <laughs> that, that that is a concern. But like, aside from that, it should all be fine. But and their numbers aren't very great either, but then they do eke out like unexpected results. And and they didn't get a result here, but they, they put up more of a fight than I was expecting to. And uh, you know, maybe they're actually not. I need to watch some Fulham is what well, I'm saying. Here's what I, my observation is, while they're not an incredibly good team, I think Silva has them playing as a team. And I think when you've got a group of guys that are at least working together and playing mm. some sort of, you know... Uh, <sighs> You know, playing as a team versus trying to pull off individual pieces of magic, I think yeah. you tend to go somewhere. I mean, you, you, Manchester United is a club that is completely dependent on one individual just doing something Garnacho like every mm. game. Fulham is a team that works as a team to scrap and fight and try to figure out how to score a goal. And they did that yeah. three times against Liverpool. And to me, that is the difference. And yeah. that's why they are where they are at this point. Are they going to win a trophy this year? No. Are they going to get relegated? No. No, well, and that's not a bad place for them to be. Uh, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna try to make an effort to watch them more, so I can make yeah, more, more, more sense of things. All right. Well, I'll need your scouting report on Jedi, um, Anthony Robinson. Sorry, Americans call. Him I know that. Okay. I, I've even I made know. a joke about how. I mean, he had a bad game, and I made a joke about him <laughs> being one of the more inefficient Jedi's like Eeth Koth or one of these sort of random guys from the Clone Wars that only super Star Wars nerds know about. I love you, Lars. There is actually a Jedi in the Star Wars canon who's named I'm a gun die and he dies immediately. (laughs) It's an incredibly goofy universe. You're such the best. It's a true thing. (laughs) All right. Surprise result of the weekend. Bournemouth 2, Villa 2. Is is this just a flat day for the villains, or have the cherries turned the corner and they've actually got something going on, Lars? Based on the highlights from this one, Bournemouth, man. I'm starting to think the Bournemouth thing might be real. 
Uh, because it's not, I mean, I, they were unfortunate not to win this. And it wasn't just that, but they repeatedly managed to, like, get in behind Aston Villa. And that's that's not easy to do. I mean, after Unai Emery took over Aston Villa, they've caught the opponent offside more than anyone else in the league by a mile. Like, that's what they do. They're very compact. The back four is very disciplined. They keep catching people offside. And Bournemouth just kept poking holes in them and getting through them. And and really, with slightly sharper finishing, they they, they should have won this. And uh, really just nullified uh, Aston Villa. And Villa didn't create a lot. And uh, I think, even though they didn't win... This for me is the sort of thing that makes me like sit up and pay attention to Bournemouth because if you look at the other positive results they've had recently, they beat Burnley. A lot of people do that. Uh, this seems to be well, a very important win anyway, tight game. Then they lost Liverpool and City, it happens. Then they beat Newcastle in a game where Newcastle were so bad, they were just completely out of it. Then they beat Sheffield United. I'm not sure that counts. But this game here, just one point, but they created a lot against the Villa team that, as we know, are flying and are not yeah. easy to play against. So th this, for me, was a bit of a sort of uh, Bournemouth. might have actually properly turned a corner here. Do you realize that Bournemouth, with their three wins in their last five, are now the same points away from 10th place as they are the relegation zone? That's Interesting. How, yeah, they're, they've got 13 points, Everton on seven, and Chelsea on 19. So... That's a really good piece of work they've done in the last month, and credit to them for kind of screwing it together. Yeah, I do worry, and, and I say worry because I really want Luton to stay up. I worry that the relegation battle this season is going to be as simple as the three who came up are not good enough and they're going back down again. I, I, I suspect that's what it is. Of course, Everton's down there now because of the points deductions. But if Everton just keep playing the way they were, they're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And I suspect... I'm not basing this on anything, but I suspect that points deduction might end up getting reduced on appeal. I, do, I that agree. Because that just seems to be what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so I think Everton are going to be absolutely fine. And I think if you're Luton or Burnley, who, who I think have some theoretical chance of staying up, you're looking above you and you think, which of these guys are we actually finishing ahead of? Because I think with, with Bournemouth, Nottingham Forest, Fulham, Wolves, Palace, Everton, you know, I, I do worry that it's the three that came up who are going straight back down again. Okay, uh, let's run through some of the other results quickly. Sitting in first place in a game where I think the result kind of flatters Wolves. Arsenal 2, Wolves 1. Man, that first goal Arsenal scored is mm. quintessentially a great example of how you beat a team sitting deep on you when you've got yeah. somebody like Saka who's willing just to kind of take a bunch of defenders on at the same time and make them all look like idiots. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it just seems to me that Arsenal, Arsenal are an interesting counterpoint to Liverpool in the sense that they're not as not quite as fun. Though the last couple of games, they have there's been a bit more flow to their attack. You know, they were certainly enjoying themselves against Lance. But it's much more like they just kind of get the job done and they don't let the opponent create too much. And they just kind of they're just kind of ticking along with it. Whereas with Liverpool, there's like an element of chaos, seems to be, constantly. Uh, and uh, what we'll see in the long run, which whichever one is uh, 
uh, best suited to, to try to hang and keep pace with City. But there's something like worryingly, I say worryingly, being a Spurs fan, worryingly proficient about Arsenal and about they're just kind of getting the job done. And we've seen flickers in the last few games of like the this more flowing attacking game we saw in the first half of last season. So so Arsenal just kind of just kind of motoring along, picking up the points. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant to say Arsenal has Luton up next, which is obviously uh, a good opportunity for them to kind of keep the run going. The reason why I bring this up, what I did fail to mention is Villa has to play City next on Mm. on Wednesday. Uh, Now, it's at Villa. City has to go on the road to do this game, but I think that is a, a really tasty matchup. Uh, and you do it does make you wonder if Villa can kind of do something similar to what Spurs found successful against City last weekend. Yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. I'm glad we hardly ever do like preview, preview stuff, yeah. stuff, stuff because podcast isn't a great medium for that. But I would love to just flag up what a fascinating game this is uh, because City. You know, three draws on the bounce now. You know, against strong opponents. Yeah, but they haven't. This is not quite themselves a couple of key absentees and crucially Rodri's not around for this one he's gotten himself suspended we know how much he means to them we saw earlier in the season we everyone knows about the win rate without him and yada yada yada. Jack Grealish not around which he hasn't been as crucial after Doku came on but Doku's picked up a knock and is apparently uh, a doubt uh, according to reports as well so if you take De Bruyne and Grealish and Doku out of it, you're a little bit short on, on creative power and take Rodri out of it, yeah. then you're short on a lot of things. They're facing a, an Aston Villa team who have won all their home games this season. And actually, if I'm not wrong, in the Premier League, they've scored three goals or more in every single home game they've played. So, so the, And they also won, I think it was something like the seven last games at home in the league last season. I think the last time they lost... Um, at home in the league was back in February. So, 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 so Villa Park is not an easy place to go. City looking a little bit vulnerable. The big caveat with Villa is that they haven't really played anyone good at home yet. You know, it's it's been... I'd say that as much as we've... They've played Brighton and they, they, they beat them, but none of the sort of big six-plus Newcastle out of that group, they haven't had any one of those at home. So, so may, And they didn't look that sharp against Bournemouth. But uh, this is very, very beautifully poised for a fascinating uh, midweek encounter, I have to say. All right, so much to look forward to on Wednesday there. Let's run through a couple of other results. Brentford 3, Luton 1. Brentford, interesting to me in that when we get to January and Ivan Tony's suspension is over and the transfer window opens up and all of that cash is probably sitting on the table just waiting from from wherever, Arsenal, United, whoever is open, Chelsea is open for Ivan Tony. Will the bees take him back, considering the amount of success they've had this season without him? I think they'll sell him for the right price, um, and I think uh, Thomas Frank has said as much. Uh, I'm kind of tempted to just trying to find the find the quotes here, but I think he's been pretty. As I recall, he said, you know, for the right price, we'll sell him. At they're they're still fundamentally a selling club and, and i don't think there's anything wrong with saying that out loud because the reality is that you know almost every club in the world are a selling club it's just some people pretend they're not mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> oh, buying sure. low, yeah buying low and selling high is the name of the game for almost every club in the world and and certainly that is always going to be the case for brentford and i think if a, a huge offer for tony comes in i think it would be only sensible for brentford to look at it and say hey turns out we're a pretty solid mid table team without this guy 
might as well take the money and reinvest in some other very clever uh, players who like they because they also got the Brighton knack of just kind of unearthing random guys. Um, most of them Danish has to be said, but sometimes non-Danes as well. Uh, and um, yeah, of just getting a lot out and not that much. And uh, speaking of that, Neil Mope scoring again. <laughs> yeah. The you man love, cannot be stopped. You love a Mope goal, don't you? Who doesn't? No, uh, it's, uh, it's tremendous. Uh, all right, let's uh, take... I got a question here. So Burnley gets a win. They mm. beat up on Sheffield 5 nothing, which is a weird... Uh, which uh, Are you sure this wasn't a, a result from last season in the championship? Yeah. <laughs> because uh, that's what it, it reads more like. But we're also on the precipice of the likely... Uh, sacking of Paul Heckingbottom, and then I it all indicators are they're going to rehire Chris Wilder back. Well, it's just one of those things where you might as well do it. Like it doesn't matter. Like you, you're getting relegated. Um, this is a team that on paper, I mean, they got promoted without being super impressive, and then they got worse in the transfer window, not better. I mean, they, they we've said this so many times before. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it's just kind of sad. This is a team that just uh, it doesn't have the quality to be in this league. And then on top of that, they have kind of have a bit of an injury crisis going on. They're missing quite a few guys, which obviously doesn't help. And, and they're just not very good. And I, I don't want to – there's no point really sort of making fun of them or laughing at them or anything. This is just not a squad that I think – has much business being in this division. Whereas Burnley, at least there's quite a lot of interesting young players there. Like Kole Osho looks very lively on the wing. Sanderberg in midfield is a good player. Amdouni has done reasonably well under difficult circumstances. You see with, with Burnley that maybe uh, they could get something together. Though it's interesting that we just spoke about Brentford. One of the things I want to mention about Brentford that's so impressive. Brentford, when they got promoted... Uh, from the championship were much more of a possession team who who pressed and, and kept the ball and stuff. And then they got promoted and Thomas Frank, the manager, looked at it and thought, huh, we're probably not going to be able to do that in this league. <laughs> and they just kind of changed the way they played and much more direct to Tony and a much bigger emphasis on defensive organization without the ball, set pieces and stuff. That sort of tactical pivot, obviously Burnley haven't done. And and company was asked about it and said, well, you know, we, we got 101 points last season. Like It doesn't make sense for us to then immediately turn around and say, well, we probably can't do that or have to play very differently. But, but I still think most weeks in the Premier League, um, you're going to have to do something slightly differently. But when you can play in Sheffield United, yeah, go have fun, I guess. Well, I'm hopeful that Chris Wilder comes back and it's the return of the overlapping center back. That's all I'm looking forward to. Yeah, bring it. I mean, might as well. <laughs> what else Going you... down. Go down. <laughs> go down overlapping. Uh, that was for the days. I love no, Ollie McBurney, red card. Again, an, an, another man whose application for the Mensa Club not getting accepted anytime soon. <laughs> he got a yellow card for leading with his elbow and elbowing a fella. And then shortly thereafter, he led with his elbow again and got the second yellow card. Absolute genius at work. Uh, last season, Forrest got away with their season by having a really stout home record, but now they're starting to drop games as they did this weekend against Everton, and I do wonder, it, despite feeling like they have a better, more solidified roster, the fact that they are now losing uh, home games also uh, makes you wonder uh, what their plight is, Lars. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, this was a pretty even game. But what I'd like to, to, to bring to everyone's attention here is uh, Forrest's results uh, with and without Taiwo Iwani. <laughs> oh, are they uh, pretty stark? 
<clears throat> well, this season with Iwani, they won three, drawn two, and lost three, which is kind of reasonable, sort of lower mid-table, just outside the, the relegation zone type of form, I'd say. Um, without Iwani, they've won none, lost two, and uh, drawn two, and lost five. Uh, no wins without Taiwo on the field. Five defeats uh, without him there. Um, this is very simplistic. I'm sure it's a pretty small sample size of position matters, yada, yada, yada. But I think for a team that sort of does their best work in transition, I think there's a really big difference between having Taiwo up there and having like slow old Chris Wood trying to sort of uh, drag his hulking frame up the field when they have a counter-attacking opportunity. Uh, there was one passage I saw in particular where like Elanga bursting forward with the ball and then he kind of gets to the edge of the box and he looks up. And it's like no one's kept pay. Like Wood is just kind of like chunk, 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 just trying to get get up there, but he's not there. Like it's 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 a problem for them. Uh, with Taiwo, it's just it's not quite the same thing. And uh, uh, I sort of again, if anyone who's not a newly relegated team are going to get sucked into something here, I do, do wonder about Forest a little bit. That's one win, I think, in the last ten. I think is that accurate? Uh, let me look. I had this pulled up here. Yeah, they've got yeah, uh, yeah one win in the last ten. Yeah, yeah, and only uh, four so, draws out of the rest of that. And this is the thing: you, you're going to see Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper. No, that, that'd be very interesting if they were managed Wrong by Chris Cooper, sir. If they if they were managed by Chris Cooper, I'd watch. Is, is he still alive? No, but anyway, Steve. <laughs> Steve <laughs> Steve, I think you're going to see Steve Cooper come under increasing pressure. Wait, is Chris but, Cooper alive? Did he I feel die? Like we need to look this up. To, I, mean, I don't know. Is he? I don't even know. I would have. I laughed when you said it. Like, of course. And then I wait. Wait a no, second. No, he's alive. He's 72. He's still around. Okay. All right. Chris Cooper confirmed still alive. Good to know. <laughs> no, but I, mean, I just think if they sack him. Now back to you. I, I'm not. I, yeah. If the sort of crazy Greek guy who owns them, if they sack Chris Steve, I did it again. If they sack Steve Cooper, can't believe and hire Chris in. Cooper. Well, yeah, and hire Chris Cooper. That would be very good. I, I really don't trust the people in charge at Forest to make any kind of good decision on when left to their own devices. So if they do sack him, yeah, maybe maybe Forest is the sort of train that could that could de derail and run out of control here. If that's just me clutching at straws, because I really want Luton to be able to overtake someone. Well, uh, good old good old Chris Cooper. Those were the days. I don't Which know what days that means, were them? But <laughs> was there was there part of your life when like Chris Cooper was a big influence? Uh, where you were like watching his scene in the Jason Bourne films over? Well, and over no, again? I'm starting to wonder. I think I'm confusing uh, names and faces. Chris Cooper was the Swansea and Fulham manager, right? And the and the Welsh manager. Mm, oh, uh, no! I was thinking about the actor Chris Cooper. <laughs> Wait, who am I thinking of? I don't know. Dark-haired fellow. Chris but, Coleman. Chris Coleman. Oh, that's why I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> when you said he was 72, and I'm like, wow, that is a head of hair on a 70-year-old. That's yeah. nuts. <laughs> Chris Coleman, Chris Cooper. Okay. I'm just a dummy. Uh, you no, you're not. But, I mean, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, Chris Coleman, uh, I, uh, yeah, Welsh manager. I'm not sure what he's been recently. Yeah, I, mean, I don't either. Yeah. That's why I said they could just hire Chris. <laughs> okay, never mind. I, yeah, I'm dry. We're I'm beating a dead horse. Well, I refuse. Yeah, yeah. This stays in. No editing. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is this is the kind of quality you're getting at the at the pod today. It's you. You get what you pay for, right, Lars? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and the final game of the weekend is Hammers one, Crystal Palace one, 
And I think this is a bit of a surprise as well, especially considering how many injuries to key attacking players Crystal Palace is dealing with, along with some defensive injuries also. Yeah, um, I, I, I think... Yeah, long-term injury to Ducora is a big problem for them. And then they are just one of these teams that if you take Eberaz out of it, their attack just doesn't produce at the same rate. Uh, so, and Eze-less Palace is not a team, as much as Ulisse is an exciting player, but that's not going to be very good. And West Ham, I've been suspicious of West Ham for a very long time. They had good results early on, but their numbers were kind of stinky. Uh, they do have, like... Any team that has Lucas Paqueta and Mohamed Kudus running around out there, I mean, you're going to get some points because those are some pretty brilliant footballers. Mm -hmm. And and James Ward-Prowse on the set pieces and Jared. But, like, we know all this stuff. But I, I really think I'm not convinced David Moyes is getting the best out of this group. Uh, and uh, I, I, I anticipate, I mean, they're ninth West Ham. I anticipate they might slide further unless they improve, and I'm not I'm not sold on what's going on there. And I feel like a, a better manager would get more out of out of what what they have there. Okay, not to over Americanize uh, a podcast, but uh, Chris Richards got man of the match for Palace, by the way, and that's a young American who we wish was getting more playing time. So maybe he'll get some more now. So. Yeah, maybe. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that was probably unneeded. No, I do, I do this with the Norwegians as well. It was like, oh, no, a Norwegian person has, has done something. <laughs> Yay, go America. Yeah. Richards. <laughs> all right, well, I think we covered them all, Lars. I think we did. I think we did, have. Did I get through? I think we did a pretty good uh, a bit for everybody. Yeah. Definitely more Chris Cooper content than I was planning on. But, yeah, uh, that, apologies that's fine. for that. Did you, uh, how did you come out in terms of the weekend in the betting world and, and your article? Did you, did you uh, yeah. win some people some money? Uh, thanks for thanks for flagging that up. Um, I, so, so for the uninitiated, I do like a, a three-game parlay is the phrase, isn't it? And, mm -hmm. then, uh, and then three singles. And my approach is to always think if... If you get two out of the three singles, at least we're in the we're in the black there, we're in the positive there, and then the parlay will land occasionally and occasionally not, and and, and that's kind of where we're at. I had I had both teams to score and over two and a half goals in Chelsea Brighton. That was fine. <laughs> that landed pretty comfortably, and and I went pretty big Check. on Newcastle Newcastle to beat Manchester United. I was completely convinced of that. Uh, that's the good news. So I had Check. two out of three singles. So I'm pretty happy with the weekend. But I did have Liverpool to cover a minus one handicap against oh. Fulham eh. because I'm not a Fulham fan. And yeah, maybe I underestimated the Kelleher effect there. But yeah. And the parlay did not land. That was uh, scuppered by I, I thought Aston Villa would beat Bournemouth. I didn't see the Bournemouth thing coming. Eh. And I thought Man City would win by more than a goal. So in terms of eh. my judgment, it wasn't a great weekend. But I always say if we got two out of the three singles landing, then we've not had a terrible time. Do you ever feel bad that you uh, write up a bet against your Spurs? Um, I definitely spend some extra time thinking about it when there is a when there's a Tottenham involvement to just think if I'm not being emotional about anything here and just right. make sure I double check what my arguments are. Uh, but but I just thought the rationale here was fine, just because of all the problems with Tottenham and the fact that City are City. Uh, I, I honestly didn't see this sort of uh, well. Basically, the the first half is what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> I thought the first half, but with City actually taking their chances, is what I thought was going to happen. And the sort of the act of defiance in the second half, and City just kind of wiltering away a little bit, is what surprised me, and has made me think a little bit that maybe City are 
you know, maybe City are a little bit further off where they should be at this point in the season. Anyway, uh, thanks for asking. New betting column has been submitted and will be up on the on the on the website uh, to tomorrow for the midweek midweek games. Just remind True. everybody what the website is, Lars. <clears throat> ah, it's 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 the the bets on website. Uh, just go on my uh, Twitter account. I'll put up links. You okay. can't stop me. Uh, and. Um, yeah, tricky spread of games this midweek. Really tricky, but I, I managed to find a couple of. I mean, we're go, we're leaning heavily into the goals. Uh, this because really, as a TV viewer, I think this is a great midweek of games because there's a lot of unpredictable games here. From the betting perspective, it, it was a challenge. But I decided to attack the sort of goal markets instead to sort of try to get a feel for where where we're going to have goals. Uh, so, uh, spoiler alert: we're backing more Brighton goals. <laughs> I mean, Brighton. Both teams to score has landed in all of Brighton's games so far. They've kept no clean sheets but they've also scored in every game and i, I I'm, I'm thinking that'll continue against brentford well we've got midweek games weekend games lots to talk about the next time you and i get together sir yeah brilliant <laughs> stuff and i'm looking forward to that all right that was good i thought a lot more chat about chris cooper than i was expecting maybe a chris cooper chris coleman sort of double duo would be ideal. Who knows? They can bring a bit of acting pathos and some Welshness to the equation. Maybe that is what Nottingham Forest need. Who knows? Um, you know, sometimes I kind of get stuck thinking, what's a good subject to talk about this week? I don't know if there's anything worth doing a pod on. It's just great to ask Peter just to come along and take the wheel. It makes my life easier, for sure. And I hope you guys appreciate those episodes as much as I appreciate recording them. Love hanging out with that guy. And and thanks for the company. To you guys who are still with us, uh, we'll be back soon enough. And sooner than last time, I'm pretty sure. Mm, see ya!